chapter 15, we're coming to the close of our study through the Gospel of Mark. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week. In verse 33 is where we're going to start. Let's read a few verses and then we'll pray once more. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. Verse 37, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. And Father, we pray as we study this and the scriptures that follow today, Lord, would you please give us insight? Father, would you please give us biblical understanding on what was accomplished when you hung upon the cross? Lord, for me, personally, (laughs) when we partake of communion, we're doing it in remembrance. There's no way that little wafer becomes your body. There's no way that grape juice in the cup becomes your blood. You were crucified once, and thank you, Lord, for that. We pray, Lord Jesus, that if we placed our faith in you, that we would have hearts of gratitude that they would never cease to be thankful for what you've done, what you accomplished on our behalf. We pray, Father, for those that might be among us today that have yet to place their faith in you. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would move upon their hearts and that they would ask the hard questions and that you would answer their questions of eternal life, Lord, you are the answer. So thank you for your word, and thank you for your spirit who teaches us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus, Jesus the Messiah, not a good man, Jesus the Messiah, God in the flesh, God incarnate, you know, that's, that's that word, you know, but it means that he's in the flesh. He was a sinless one. That's so hard for us to wrap our minds around because we're not sinless. I mean, we are sinful in our thoughts. Things just, just run in, across our mind. We're sinful in our thoughts. We're surely sinful in our actions. But Jesus, the Messiah, God in the flesh, the sinless one, arrest, arrested, spat upon, hit with the fist, uh, slapped with the palm, scourged, mocked with the robe, crowned with thorns, struck on the head with the reed, spat upon again and again, crucified, mocked by the Jews, mocked by the Romans, even mocked by the two criminals that were crucified with him. Surely mocked by Satan, mocked by the principalities and the powers and the rulers of the darkness of this age. And he continues to be mocked to the very day. 
And I want to present a question to each one of us. And we haven't even gotten, gotten into the study. And the question is this, what does that mean to you? What does that mean to you? See, we could be moved emotionally and say, oh, that's horrible that such horrible things would happen to a good man. Or we could be moved spiritually if we consider who this man was, Jesus, God in the flesh, what he accomplished, what does it mean? And I think that it's going to mean something different for each person. For me, it means life. It means abundant life now. It means eternal life. It means that one day I'll be in his presence. It means once I'm in his presence, I will never, ever not be in his presence. You know, that's what the Bible teaches. Once we're with him, we'll never not be with him. I hope that you could echo that. It says that darkness came over the whole land. Now, the time frame was around noon to three in the afternoon. Darkness came upon the land. Now, you'd think that that would get people's attention, don't you? I mean, we know what it's like to have clouds, <laughs> dark clouds, but darkness? I think of what David wrote prophetically in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, oh, my God, I cry. Listen, oh, my God, I cry in the daytime. But you do not hear, listen to this, and in the night season, and am not silent. Guys, prophetically, this is speaking of what we just read in Mark's gospel. Jesus, of course, was crucified around 9 o'clock in the morning, and then this darkness came upon the land from noon till 3. Darkness. I think... Many things are symbolic. You know, I mean, I believe there was literal darkness. It says there was darkness. I believe there was darkness. But, but I think of darkness. I think of the fact that the darkness is really a picture of what we were before we came to Christ. You know, guys, the Bible doesn't just say that we were in darkness. That's how we like to say, yeah, it's before I came to Christ, I was in darkness. No, no, no. The Bible says something much more than that. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Paul wrote, for you were once darkness. You were darkness before coming to Christ. You were darkness. But now you are light. It doesn't just say you've come into the light. Paul doesn't here in Ephesians. He says, you are light in the Lord. And then Paul's exhortation. Listen, if ever the word goes forth and there's not an exhortation, you're lacking. There's always an exhortation. What do I do with this truth? Paul tells us, walk as children of light. Peter said a similar thing or wrote a similar thing in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. As Jesus hung upon the cross... And it's so hard for us to understand this. It's hard for me to understand. I'll speak for myself. But as he hung upon the cross, he experienced separation from the Father to a degree. Now, I say it's hard for us to understand or hard for me to understand because, you know, it's hard to understand the Trinity. I believe what the Bible teaches. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. But it's 
apparent from Genesis on that God is manifested in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But as Jesus hung upon that cross, he did not cease to be God incarnate. He did not cease to be uh, who he is, but there was a separation. And you wonder, why was there a separation? And Paul tells us, I mean, we have many scriptures that tell us, but let me give you just a sampling of what Paul says. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, and this is why, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's why. That's why there was a separation as he hung upon the cross. The word righteousness, it literally means justification, just as if I've never sinned, or becoming or being declared righteous is really what the word means, being declared righteous. So I have another question for you. Have you become the righteousness of God? Have you placed your faith in Christ? You can. That's a wonderful thing, guys. Listen, this is we live in the age of grace. It's like, well, what do I have to do? You know, what do I have to give up? What do I have to just come to Christ? Come to faith in Christ. If you truly come to faith in Christ, he will clean up your life. He will change your life. He will transform you. He will sanctify you. He will make you into a different person if you truly come to faith in Christ. If. Humble yourself if you haven't. Humble yourself before the Lord today. Don't wait. Jesus is coming Place your faith in him. Live for him. Christian, live for him. Isn't that our calling? Live for Christ. Live for the Lord. Make him known. Jesus not only endured the pulling back of the Father as he hung upon the cross, and we have many even Old Testament scriptures that speak of that pulling back, but Jesus also experienced the outpouring of the Father's wrath as he became the substitute for our sinful nature. Again, guys, if we just kind of look at, and this is true of all scripture, but if we just look at the crucifixion, if we look at the cross with kind of an arm's distance and say, yeah, this is what Jesus did, and I benefit from this because I've placed my faith in Christ, you know, we're really missing the big picture. God poured out on Christ the wrath that was due us. By the way, this is why, one of many reasons, I believe in a pre-trib rapture. Because we're not subject to wrath. If you're in Christ Jesus, you're not subject to wrath. The tribulation is all about God's wrath. And we're not subject to that. But if you have not placed your faith in Christ, the Bible declares that you're still under the wrath of God. I mean, that's how we start out, under the wrath of of God. We don't start out as good people and become bad after time. You know, we see this in the scriptures. We see the sinfulness even of the child that comes out of the womb. Tracy and I would kind of tongue in cheek, you know, as we would hold one of our five children and one of our 14, we keep waiting for 15. I keep saying 50 week after week after week. <laughs> but but uh, grandchildren, and, and we kind of tongue-in-cheek say, look at this little sinner. 
And, and they are little sinners, and they manifest their sin very early on, you know. Give me, give me, give me. I want, I want, and I want it now. And this is a sinful nature. But I'll tell you, Jesus bore the wrath that was due us. He took it all. And here's the question again. What does this mean to you? What does this mean to you? Does it mean anything to you? As horrible as it was, Jesus was fulfilling his purpose and his plan of redemption. Isaiah prophesied, of course, this was given to him by God, and he just recorded these things, but he says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It, it pleased who? It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Guys, if we just simply see it, listen, we're not biblical. If we simply see the devil, he's out. He was out to get Jesus. Oh, he was out to get Jesus. We were just talking about it between services. How you would think that the devil, if he would have known better, would have tried to keep Jesus from the cross. Rather than crucify him, crucify him, they would have said, let's do something else with him, you know. Let's keep him around, you know. Let's make sure that nothing happens to him. Because, of course, the work of redemption that was accomplished on the cross led to his ultimate defeat. But it needs to be understood, this wasn't the devil doing this to Jesus. This was Father's plan. This was not plan C or D, this was God's plan from the beginning. Guys, listen, right after the fall in Genesis, you say, oh, you believe Genesis? Oh, don't you? You don't believe the first five books, you're going to have a problem with the rest of the books of the Bible. And there's too many Christians who have thrown out the first five books, and I don't know what they do with that. And they have a hard time understanding and appreciating the rest of the scriptures. But God declared the remedy for the fall while they were still in the garden. Jesus is the lamb who was slain before the creation of the world, according to Revelation. This was God's plan. This was God's purpose. What does this mean to you? Man, when I just stop and I think about the reality of this, that that this was God's plan from the very beginning, that Jesus knew. that Now, you know, I, I think, Lord, you knew the sins I would commit. You knew the lies I would tell. You knew the actions. You knew the thoughts. You knew, you know it all. You knew it all. And yet you bore all of our sins upon the cross. How marvelous that is. How glorious that is. I say that there was a separation between the Father and Jesus, but the separation while, they were, while Jesus was on the cross, it wasn't complete in the sense that we know that God was working. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself at the cross. God is saying, this is my means of reconciliation. There is enmity between me and you. Your sin has separated me. 
from you. You from me. But here's the remedy. Here's, here's the bridge. Here's, the, here's what's going to fill in the gap. Here's what's going to make it possible. Verse 37, it tells us that Jesus cried with a loud voice and he breathed his last. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're so blessed, guys, because we don't have just one gospel account. We have four gospel accounts. We have three synoptic gospels. And then we have John's marvelous uh, gospel account that's so unique and so wonderful. And, and we could go to the other gospel accounts and we could see what Jesus actually cried out. He didn't just say, ah! He cried out something very specific. He said, it is finished. That's what he said. It is finished or paid in full. Paid in full. And then he bowed his head and he died. Well, we're going to come back to that in a moment, but I want you to consider that before Jesus died on the cross, before the veil was torn, we haven't even read that far yet, but before the veil was torn in two, before Jesus cried, it is finished, an amazing spiritual transaction took place. The Father laid upon Jesus all the guilt and wrath that our sins deserve. Jesus bore our guilt and our sin, totally satisfying the wrath of God for us. What does this mean to you? You know, uh, a number of years ago, I used to talk quite a bit about the emergent church and the dangers of the emergent church and what some of these emergent teachers were teaching. And I would warn you uh, quite often about the emergent church. I don't do that any longer, and I'll tell you why in a moment. But um, some of those emergent teachers, remember, they would say the most outlandish things. They would say that it was like child abuse that the father was pleased to bruise the son. And they would just take scripture and twist scripture. And, and I thought, why would anybody buy into this garbage? Why would anyone buy into this unbiblical uh, view of the cross and, and the work of redemption and everything. And the reason I don't warn you about the emergent church any longer is because many of you would say, what is the emergent church? And the reason you probably don't know what the emergent church is is because the emergent church has emerged <laughs> into mainline evangelicalism. And we have so many false teachings and, 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 and concepts concerning the work of Christ and what it means, you know, for him to be our savior and all of these things. And the damage has been done. This is why we need to be people who do our due diligence. We go, we study the scriptures on our own. We're not dependent upon a talking head. Please don't be dependent upon me. You need to be diligent students of the word of God. You need to study the scriptures. You need to know what the word of God teaches Isaiah 53, it says things, by the way, written 700 years before the crucifixion, 700 years before these things that we're reading about in Mark's gospel. He declared these things, of course, prophetically. 
He, speaking of Jesus, he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace. Do you catch that? The chastisement for our peace was laid upon him, was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. What does this mean to you? The death of Jesus on the cross shows the seriousness and the awfulness of humanity's sin, but it also is a demonstration of God's love. You guys know where I'm going with this. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love. I love that it says that it does not say demonstrated. It says demonstrates. It's an ongoing thing. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What does this mean to you? What does this mean? Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. It's interesting that, uh, as we saw last week, you know, at the beginning of the crucifixion, they offered Jesus a drink. Remember that? A sedative. You know, those Romans, they were such kind people, and they wanted to just, you know, give a little bit to take the edge off. And, of course, Jesus pulled away from it. He didn't want any sedative. But we see him uh, at, at, at the end of his crucifixion. I say the end because he's in complete control of what, what's happening here. No one's taking his life from him. But at the end, he says, I thirst. I'm thirsty. And they give him a sponge full of sour wine. Sour wine. Uh, I think of sour grapes. What's sour grapes? Sour grapes. You know, uh, <laughs> I've been gypped. Now, Jesus wasn't saying I've been gypped because Jesus would see the byproduct of his suffering. He would see the, you know, the, the, the horrific things that he was going through. He would see the offspring, Isaiah tells us, which is us, the church, those who have placed their faith in Christ. But he takes a drink and he bows the head and he dies. He gives up his life after six hours. Now, I'm going to come back to that in a moment because that's significant when you consider the whole process of crucifixion. I was saying to the first service, I, I thought it was interesting that we see Jesus, who is the one who offers living water. Remember the Samaritan woman? That was a day, in essence, that he says, I thirst. Give me a drink. Um, and then he speaks to her about living water. Jesus in John chapter 7, on the last day of the feast, as they would splash the water out on the pavement, you know, and that picture of, of the water from the rock splashing for the children of Israel as they made their way through the, you know, Jesus said, 
Come unto me. I'll give you living water. Remember that? And it will become within you like a fountain of water that just kind of, it just it has its own life to it. And then John, of course, he gives us the commentary on this. And John says, well, by this he was speaking of the Holy Spirit. And I thought that was interesting. In Jeremiah, we're going through Jeremiah on Wednesday nights. And, and Jeremiah kind of opens up. If you've been in the study, you know that God rebukes the children of Judah because they had, um, they had rejected God, who is the living water, the one who satisfies. This is another thing that's kind of hard for us because we don't live in the Middle East. We live on Whidbey Island. If there's one thing we have a lot of, we have water. <laughs> but if you're in the Middle East, water, boy, it speaks volumes of so many things. Have you ever been really, really thirsty? And there's nothing that satisfies like water. You don't want tea. You don't want a Coke. You don't want, you want water. And uh, he rebuked the children of Judah for rejecting him and for building for themselves, and this is what we see many doing even within the church today, building cisterns that don't hold water at all. And he rebuked them. I just thought it was ironic, or interesting, not ironic, that Jesus cried out, I thirst. Verse 38, then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, truly, this man was the son of God. Have you ever read that and thought to yourself, really? This convinced, I thirst? That convinced the centurion that this was the son of God? How would that convince the centurion that that was the son of God? Well, we'll come back to that in just a moment. I got a lot of things to come back to. Hopefully I remember to come back to them. Verse 40. And there were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and it goes on. Look at verse 40, 41, who, followed, who also followed him and ministered to him. I like that. They followed him. They ministered to him when he was in Galilee. And there were many others, as many other women came up to Jerusalem. And I think of these women. I, I, I think of the whole scene. I, I, when I read the scriptures, I, I just try to imagine what it would have been like. Because the disciples are gone. They all split except for John. John's there. And he's there with Mary, the mother of Jesus. We know that because John tells us that, that as Jesus hung upon the cross, we see him concerned for his mother's well-being, even though she had four other sons and daughters, um, he was concerned for her welfare because his brothers did not believe. Remember, the scriptures declared that his brothers did not believe until he was resurrected from the dead. And then, of course, they became believers and prominent in the, in the early church there, at least two of them. But it's interesting that the disciples have all fled, just as it was prophesied that they would. Even Peter now is gone even though he said it would never happen, that he would remain with him and die with him if he, if he had to. They're all gone. But you have this little flock of women, and they're there. And I wonder if they felt a little uh, 
protected in a sense. They weren't going to be crucifying any women. Maybe they felt a little protected then. I was saying to the first service that to me, I remember, I'm, you know, I'm not father time, but I'm an old guy. And I remember when women were protected, you know, you wouldn't treat a woman like you treat a man. And we're beyond those days. It's unbelievable. There's, there's no distinction. See, there's a problem with all this woke mentality. It bleeds over into a lot of areas. But I think of these women as they're watching. Remember, guys, no one understood what was fully taking place. Jesus said, we're going to Jerusalem. They'll hand me over to the Gentiles. They'll crucify me, and on the third day, I'll rise from the dead. And it's apparent as you read through the Gospels, it goes in one ear, and it comes out the other ear, and they don't understand it. In fact, they didn't understand a lot of things that they were doing. Remember, John tells us that even the triumphal entry, they're doing all these things. They're singing Psalm from Psalm, uh, Psalm 118. They're taking palm branches. They're doing things that the prophets said that they would do. And John says, uh, we did things, these things and we didn't even know what we were doing until afterwards. And then it became apparent. They were able to connect the dots after the resurrection and everything else. But, but as they're living it, as they're going through it, all of this is, is troubling to them. And they're just trying to figure everything out. And I think of the women, how difficult that would have been. What does it mean to you when you look at the scriptures, when you consider the crucifixion, because you know, guys, our whole faith in Christ is dependent upon this. Do we understand this? It's upon the cross, what Jesus accomplished on the cross. The cross, it wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't an oops of God. It wasn't, oh, Satan got the victory that day. <laughs> no, no. It was a plan of God being fulfilled. What does it mean to you? It means nothing to you or it means everything to you. It, it is dependent upon relationship. Weak illustration, but I'm going to use it anyway. You know, the longer you live the more we say goodbye to people. Uh, we, you know, we, we say goodbye to friends. We say goodbye to family members. You know, I, uh, Tracy's father went home to be with Jesus a number of months ago, and he was kind of the last holdout of our parents, you know, and, and uh, it's just kind of life. You just, you, you, you deal with that. And we know many other people. They have loved ones that have died, and, and we, every day we hear about someone who's died. I don't know about you. I'm kind of a news guy. I, I look at the headlines. And uh, there were a number of people that died this weekend. There were famous people, you know. And, and I just, well, but that's interesting. But I'll, I'll be honest with you. It doesn't really mean anything to me. I don't know them. I didn't know them. It, it doesn't have an effect upon me. I surely wouldn't mourn as the wife would mourn or the children would mourn because there's relationship. I don't have a relationship with them. I could read about them and say, oh, yeah, that guy used to be in this band or whatever. But I didn't have a relationship with him. 
So when I keep asking the question, how does this make you feel? Or what do you do with these things? Or what do these things mean to you? It really comes down to relationship. Do you have a relationship with the Lord? Before I was a Christian, I I talk about it quite often, it had such an impact upon me, and it was heresy, really, but the Lord used it. It was my generation. Jesus Christ Superstar, the rock opera. And uh, you, you had these hippies and rock stars, you know, playing and singing and all of these different things. And uh, my sister and I, we would watch this movie over and over and over again. I say it was full of heresy because at the end, if you watch the film of it, and it would be true of the rock opera, the live performance of it, that at the end, you know, everyone kind of goes away sad. There's no mention of resurrection. It's just, you know, Jesus, that good old guy, you know, died on the cross. And what a sad story, sad ending. And it moved us emotionally because it was presented in a way that was kind of culturally uh, something that we liked. We liked the songs. We liked all of that type of thing. But, you know, I got over it after I'd watched the film. It wasn't like I walked around all day with this, this heavy heart because, you know, all the hippies got on the school bus and drove away and Jesus was, <laughs> you know, left there. By the way, Amos and Josiah, great biblical names for guys to be traveling around Israel. But um, they uh, were going to different locations. And as they were going to different locations, uh, Amos, you know, he's my grandson. So we're in communication quite a bit. And uh, Amos said, oh, we went to uh, this location and we saw this and we saw that and I said buddy did you climb up on the hill did you go up to the cross on the hill and he said oh the one that was left from Jesus Christ Superstar and I said yeah you gotta go up there you gotta go see it you know I go when you get up there you'll find that it's not a cross and it's not even a tree it's like fiberglass or something like that you know and they just kind of left it there because it was you know part of the place where they film that thing. But I'll tell you what, when I think of the cross, when I partake of communion, not because the juice becomes his blood, not because the bread or the wood, as I joked about, becomes his body. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't. Christ is not crucified over and over again. He's crucified once. It's not the sacrament that saves me. It's the Savior that saves me. If we don't get that right, you're not born again. You need to place your faith in Christ. You need to be born again. These are things, these are entrapments that, you know, religion gives us. And this is why we need to be people of the word and just say, this is what the word of God says. I believe this. I believe what Romans, the author of Romans wrote about Jesus and the crucifixion and the sacrifice, and I believe these things. But when I think of the body of my Lord, I think of the blood, I I think of the fact that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. I think about Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When I think about Jesus, man, it moves me. 
You know why? Because I've got a relationship with him. Because he's my Lord. My Lord. My dad hated that. I was raised Roman Catholic, went to parochial school, did all that stuff, you know. And then, uh, like so many Roman Catholics and so many Jews in the early 70s, you'd find them not in the synagogue or in the church, you would find them in the meditation temples because they were disillusioned by <laughs> their, their lifeless religions. But when I received Christ, everything changed. I had a relationship with the Lord. It wasn't about doing this or not doing that. It's about... It's about being born again, born of the Spirit, being transformed spiritually by the Spirit of the living God. Nehemiah and I were talking about this between services, and we're talking about the fact that, you know, when you consider the cross, yes, it's sad, but it also should bring joy to our heart. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples on the night that he was arrested? He's talking to them about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is with you. The Holy Spirit will be in you. And then, you know, you tarry, wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. What, the promise of the Father is different than the Spirit of God with us or in us? Yes, the Spirit of God will come upon you. Look at the words. Words are important. Upon you. Day of Pentecost. But remember what Jesus says? He says, paraphrased, it's it's to your advantage that I go away. If I don't go away, the paracletus, the helper, the counselor, will not come. Think of that. Jesus, I'm going away. And he's coming. And he'll be with you forever. And he will dwell within you and he'll abide within you. And you'll become believers, not all people. Believers, you'll become the temple, the living, breathing temple of the living God. Wow. Wow. Well, I better get back to the centurion or I'm going to forget it altogether. You know, guys, the tearing of the veil... You guys know about that. It's torn from the top to the bottom, indicating that God is doing this. Again, this is not Satan doing this. This is God from the top to the bottom. On one hand, we could argue and say, well, did did people rush into the Holy of Holies? No, they would have been stoned to death. It's not what happened in the physical temple that sat in Jerusalem. It's what happened in the physical temple in Jerusalem Speaking of heaven, because everything that was on earth, as far as the temple was concerned, listen, what's in heaven is not the type, that's the reality. What's on earth is the type, it's the copy, not the type. It's the access. Anyone, Jew, Gentile, Jew, non-Jew, that's what that means has access to the Father. The veil has been torn. Don't you have to be a priest? Don't worry about that. I'll make you priests and kings in my kingdom. 
You see what I'm saying? It's glorious. It's glorious what has transpired. We have access to the throne of grace. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16. We have access to the mercy seat of God in heaven where it counts. Well, truly this man was the son of God. The centurion knew how crucifixion went down. This is what we do. This is how we do it. We know how long it takes for men to die by crucifixion. Some die earlier, some die later, but we know how this thing plays out. Did you know that typically crucifixion was a long, agonizing death lasting for 30 hours or longer? Did you know that? See, again, when we read the scriptures, we just kind of think, you know, they just do it and then they take them down. And of course, that's what they did here. And there was a reason behind it. But could you imagine for 30 hours? I read that it's documented that one crucifixion, one particular fellow that was crucified remained upon that cross alive for 11 days. I can't even imagine that. It was a long, long process 30 hours and yet Jesus does he dies in six hours that's interesting well, I don't want to read into it too much six six is the number of man he was atoning for the sins of humanity John chapter 10 verse 18 no one takes my life takes it from me speaking of his life but I lay it down of myself I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again this commandment I have received from my father Jesus was fulfilling something if I am lifted up from the earth listen if you look at the context I don't be I don't think that Jesus was speaking just of the ascension I believe that Jesus was speaking of the crucifixion If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Isn't that glorious? Something that Jesus did 2,000 years ago, still the ripple, the blessing, it continues through generation to generation. It doesn't matter what nationality you are. It doesn't matter what sex you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter if you're living under a communist regime or an Islamic regime or the regime of the United States of America. It does not matter. Salvation is offered to all. Well, I got to finish this up. Now, when it was evening... Evening had come because it was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, so he would have been a member of the Sanhedrin. He would have been there when they were making the decisions about Christ, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went to Pilate and asked for the body. I got to paraphrase this because I'm out of time. Pilate marveled. Why? Because Pilate knew how these things went down. He's dead in six hours. Has he been dead for a while? I mean, is he really dead? That's what he's saying. Is he really dead? Yes, he's dead. He's been dead for a while. And he let Joseph take the body. And because it was Sabbath or preparation day for the Sabbath, they took the body. They wrapped his body in linen cloth. They laid 
about 100 pounds of, of spices on him to deal with the stench of decay that would surely begin to take place within a few days. Do you know that usually the bodies of crucified, the crucified, were left on their crosses to rot or to be eaten by birds of prey? But because of the time, it's, it's Passover. You know, appearance is important for religious people. Have you figured that out? We don't want that. We don't want those guys hanging around up there. That just doesn't look good, you know. This is a holy day for us, after all. You need to take them down. Wait a minute. You're the guys that wanted them crucified. Pilate could have said, remember when I did this? Not that Pilate was a good guy, but I don't want to have anything to do with you guys. You guys are handing them over because of jealousy. You envy him. Because more people are going to him than they're coming to you. But for appearance sake. There's so much here. I always feel when I finish up a Bible study, worship team, come on up please. I always feel like, you know, gosh, there's so much more. And there always is. And I hope that you realize that. And this is why we could never exhaust what the scriptures teach. There's always something new that you're going to see. There's always something fresh that the Lord's going to show you if you are a serious seeker of the Lord and desiring to understand his word. I think it's wonderful that Joseph, even though he shrunk back as they were putting Jesus to death and he was fearful, no no doubt, once Jesus died, he was not ashamed to identify with Jesus. You know, there are many people in many churches today who are afraid to identify with Jesus. Well, we don't mind identifying with Jesus when we're in here. (laughs) This is easy. But it's when we're out there, when we're at work and everything else. And this is why so many Christians compromise. Hey, guys, has your compromise led anyone to Christ? I mean, honestly. We're going to drink with the guys. We're going to hang. We're going to talk like everyone else talks, you know. And they're going to know somehow that I'm a believer. Rather than just being a light. Being the light that you are. And shining. And being an example. So that people know where you stand. You know, guys, here's the thing. You know, I I, I told this story so many times. But, you know, I was a carpenter. uh, That was my trade. And, um. And I'd work on these job sites, and construction workers, you know, they're kind of rough and tough, and some could be rougher and tougher than others. And I worked with these guys. We called them ZZ Top. They were twins, and they had big, long beards. This is back in the early 80s before big, long beards were popular. And uh, they had short tempers, and uh, they were just, you know, and... um, and I worked for them. I worked with their younger brother. They were all contractors. And, um, and these guys knew that I was a believer. And on Friday nights, you know, when it was time to get our paychecks, and on construction jobs, you always had to wait to get your paycheck. 
I don't know why you had to wait. <laughs> we had to wait. And so as you're waiting, you know, they would buy cases of beer and they would come back and they would sit there. And that was kind of the, you know, end of the week for all the guys on the job. And, and, um, and I would, you know, hang out there. And when the checks came, I would take my check and say, okay, guys, see you on Monday, you know. And, and one of the guys, they were bikers, he came, he followed me to my vehicle and he said, uh, I know that you're a Christian and you uh, don't drink or anything like that. But would you hang out if we uh, made it convenient for you? I said, but I'm not, you know, I said, I'll tell you what, I'm a family guy. I got kiddos at home. I just want to get home. And the next week, you know, he'd buy a, some sodas, you know, and he'd say, here, and they would, they'd tease me, you know, and call me different things. People would ask, you know, you an alcoholic? No, <laughs> I'm not an alcoholic. I just, when I came to Christ, I stopped drinking. I started drinking when I was 12 years old, and by the time I came to Christ, it was like, I'm done with that life. I don't need to do that anymore. It ruins lives. Why would I want to be a slave to that any longer? But I'll tell you, on those job sites, many times those guys... Rough, tough, the cussing, the attitudes, the fights that would break out and all of that. When, when they would get hit with something, they would come to me kind of on the sly and say, Hey, Dan, could you pray for me? Could you pray for my kid? I'm going through this. We're going through that. My wife, my old lady. Remember that? My old lady and I were not doing real well. Could you pray? Yeah, I could pray. And I'll tell you, people are living in darkness. People are darkness. And they want some light. And we're the light. So let's stop being gray. Let's stop compromising, thinking that somehow we're going to win people. Let's just be, we don't have to be preaching you know, from the housetop. We just need to be light where we are. Just be the real deal. And you're going to find that more times than not, it's not like you're looking for people to share the gospel with. They're coming to you because they realize you're different. All those other guys, they just snorted half of their paycheck up their nose and you're <laughs> waiting to go home to cash your check to be with your kids. I'm not going to ask them to pray for me. Do you get it? You get it. I've kept you long enough. Let's stand together. Lord, I pray that each one of us have placed our faith in you. If we haven't, I pray that we would respond today, that we'd place our faith in you, that we'd consider the cross. I pray, Lord, for the skeptic that might be here or might be watching online, Lord, that they would just think about these things, that they'd grab a Bible and read the scriptures concerning your death and resurrection, that they'd think about these things and that they'd say, what happens after life? That they'd ask questions like, if these things are true, and that, Lord, the end result, they would call upon the Lord, they'd call upon you and that they'd be saved. Pray if there's anyone in the room that has not done that, Lord, or downstairs in the cafe, that they'd call upon you and be saved. Help us, Lord. Use us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.